tuning in, you are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment here this week. Uh, Mike, the sound guy, is on vacation. The guy's a volunteer, and when he decided that he needed some time to celebrate Independence Day, I thought we needed to give it to him. So I am broadcasting from La Chateau T-Dot on the edge of Durham, North Carolina, uh, here with Samson, who's currently vegged out on the carpet next to my recliner. Got a lot of stuff to talk about this week, but before we get into it, I want to give you some updates on the podcast itself. Uh, last week, I mentioned we had created a Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash fisk, patreon.com slash fsck. Uh, there's a little bit more there. Uh, last week, there was nothing at all. Now we've got a little bit set up. We even have four patrons. So to those four souls listening to this show, thank you tremendously for your support. Uh, the Patreon account is going to become basically my uh, my R&D budget for the podcast, if you will. What y'all contribute to that, I'm going to reinvest back into the show so we can continue to grow and expand and refine it and uh, reach out to more people that way. So check that out when you can. Again, it's patreon.com slash Fisk, F-S-C-K. And for those of you who happen to be signed up as patrons before the middle part of this week, we will have a patron-only uh, bonus episode. So we do some periodic subscriber-only bonus episodes every now and then. We're also going to have occasional patron-only episodes, and the first one has already been recorded and will be uploaded later on this week. While we're talking about bonus episodes, so last Monday, when our regular podcast dropped, there was also a special subscriber-only bonus episode for the podcast with friends like these, hosted by Anna Marie Cox. I am a guest on their show for that one. Uh, I talk with uh, Anna and with Jane Coaston about the Philando Castile verdict. If you are not already a subscriber to With Friends Like These from Crooked Media, please check it out. I'll make sure to include a link at the top of the show notes so you can hear us on that one. So as I mentioned, there was a lot of political news, but we're only going to cover a tiny slice of it because Mike being on vacation means I don't have any audio clips. I tried uh, figuring out how to put one of them in myself and I actually managed to crash GarageBand. So the original recording of this podcast that you're currently listening to, uh, most of it got wiped away because when I reloaded the autosave, several chunks of what I had recorded were completely gone. So I'm not going to fuck around with any audio clips. We're just going to have you listen to my mellifluous voice for this entire episode and go through some stuff quickly before I get into the criminal justice stuff that I'm good at talking about anyway. Um, in the political world, there's been a lot of really dumb shit going on this week, like a lot of dumb shit. It's actually kind of weird how much dumb shit gets produced in a given week time span. Uh, in the non-dumb shit world, actual substantive policy world, uh, the president has created this commission on uh, election integrity. Uh, it's really just, it, I've never seen someone win an election and talk about how fraudulent it was as much as he has. My assumption is that he's hurt, that he lost the popular vote. It hurts his ego because in his mind he was going to crush the popular vote but still lose the electoral college. I don't know what it is. Anyhow, uh, he has appointed Chris Kobosh or Kobach or however the hell you pronounce his name, the Secretary of State from Kansas to head the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. And one of the first things this commission did was send a request to all 50 states to turn over a lot of voter data, not just the publicly available stuff like who you are, where you live, what party you're in, but also including your date of birth, the last four digits of your social security number, a bunch of other stuff the federal government has no business knowing, certainly has no business compiling, wanted this information sent to an unsecured email address. Like if I were a hacker of some kind focusing on identity theft overseas, I would spend my time camped out watching the federal government because what is going on right now is an absolute shit show. Anyhow, as you can imagine from the government trying to request all of this stuff, a lot of states have said no. 
They've just, doesn't matter if it's a Republican state or a Democrat state, they've said they're refusing to comply. Here in North Carolina, uh, what we have done is we've agreed to turn over the stuff that's already a public record. Uh, I think even that is a bit ridiculous, force the federal government to put in the labor themselves if that's going to be what they want to do with their time. Uh, but it's already public, so, you know, no harm, no foul. But what kills me is that, you know, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember when we lost our shit as Republicans at the thought of a federal gun registry because we didn't think it was Uncle Sam's business what we did with our constitutional rights. If I want to buy a gun, fuck you. You don't have a right to know about it. The state can know about it if they've got a permitting process, but Uncle Sam's none of his damn business. Voting is the same way. The Constitution to the United States of America delegates authority over voting and elections to the states. It's up to the states to put this stuff together. It's not something Uncle Sam needs to stick his finger in. And that whole notion of federalism, as you can imagine, uh, triggered our Papaya POTUS, who took to Twitter, uh, to complain, quote, numerous states are refusing to give information to the very distinguished voter fraud panel, in all caps. What are they trying to hide? Well, my guess is probably some tax returns and a few other things. I don't know who else would do that. Um, but while we're on the topic of Twitter... Trump also got himself uh, some media attention by going out of his way to repeatedly attack Joe Scarborough and Micah. I'm going to butcher her last name, so I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. But anyhow, people on Morning Joe on MSNBC that were going out of their way back during the primary to talk about how great Donald Trump was and played a key role in him becoming president of the United States, uh, Trump has turned on them and says that uh, called Joe Scarborough crazy Joe Scarborough and Dumb as a Rock, Micah, are not bad people, but their low-rated show is dominated by their NBC bosses too bad. Uh, also went on in another tweet to talk about Micah um, bleeding from a facelift, supposedly, when they were at uh, Mar-a-Lago Resort, and on and on and on. So this became, of course, the media narrative about him attacking another woman, which was normal. And then, just, uh, just a couple days ago, Trump goes in a tweet... Quote, my use of social media is not presidential. It's modern day presidential. Make America great again. Uh, and then just a few hours later, tweets out this uh, meme of, you know, he used to be involved with WWE, WWF, whatever it was. Used to be WWF, became WWE, Worldwide Wrestling. God, I completely fucked that up. World Wrestling Entertainment was the new name for the group. Uh, anyhow, he used to be a guest regularly because he was good friends with Vince McMahon because they were a bunch of New York billionaires. And there was a particular uh, episode where he tackles McMahon and some guy on Reddit apparently took that video, photoshopped CNN's logo over top McMahon's face and put that together. Uh, Trump tweeted that out and then the official at POTUS Twitter account retweeted it. So that has been the uh, the narrative for the past 24 hours because, of course, as you can imagine, as stupid as the video is and as much as Republicans would rightfully question what kind of incompetent imbecile we have in the White House. You know, you go from George Washington and everything he did trying to put together the country, your first string of several first presidents where they're really building this nation from scratch. Uh, Abraham Lincoln keeping the union together, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt got nothing to fear but fear itself. Fast forward to Ronald Reagan, you know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. And now you got Donald Trump talking about fraud news network and going on about the media and all this other bullshit on Twitter. Like we have really stepped down as a country. Jesus Christ. Uh, but of course, that's not enough because now the media is whining about all oh, the president is inciting violence against us. Hey, get a grip. All right, he's probably done that quite frequently in other venues. This is not the thing to say is that argument. I didn't take this clip of a wrestling thing with the CNN logo on as incitement to violence. It's just a reminder that everyone on both sides is terrible, and we are completely fucked as a country because there's no competent leadership on either side. <sighs> anyway, before we leave the topic of the Papaya POTUS and his media obsession, there was one funny story where apparently this guy has actually hired somebody to create fake Time magazine covers with him on it with fake stories, and he's put these up around his golf clubs. Uh, I'm not sure who first broke the story. I read about it in the Washington Post, but the barcode 
from the fake Time magazine cover uh, is the same barcode from a Photoshop tutorial that someone found online. And it doesn't even look that good. Like if you're going to create a fake Time magazine cover and you're a multi-billionaire, hire someone to do it right. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to talk about it much beyond that. It's just a sign that this guy's just got some serious, serious uh, self-esteem issues, really. I mean, for him to be as self-confident as he supposedly is, he sure does. It doesn't act like it. You know what I mean? Um, here locally in North Carolina, it's been an entertaining week. Uh, a group of Republicans out west decided to protest the Starbucks because apparently a woman came into a Starbucks, ordered something. And, you know, I don't really drink Starbucks often, but apparently they put your name on a cup and call your name out when it's ready. I usually just get regular old coffee, so they give it to me right away. Um, anyhow, when the person uh, gave her name, the barista called out, build the wall when the drink was ready. And the woman felt that that was insulting, so they organized this massive multi-GOP protest, and they protested by going to Starbucks and buying a bunch of drinks and giving their names as Trump administration officials. Now, there's nothing nefarious with this, but I really have to question the intellect behind thinking, hey, let me protest a business by giving them lots of money. Like, it would make more sense if you just kind of like sat in and didn't buy anything, use their Wi-Fi or whatever else. But anyhow, uh, Starbucks made a shitload of money that day. So if they think that's going to be a successful protest, good for them. The North Carolina House of Representatives has approved a resolution to explore uh, the potential impeachment of our Secretary of State, Elaine Marshall. Uh, Marshall's a Democrat. She's been in that position for pretty much an eternity. I don't know when she first got elected, but she's been around the entire time I've been in North Carolina. Um, not entirely sure the gist of this. Uh, Representative Chris Millis, who represents Pender County, is arguing that the Secretary of State's office is giving notary public commissions to illegal aliens, essentially. That's the gist of it. Um, but it just seems kind of weird because the Secretary of State's office has to follow both state and federal law, and if they weren't, I'd imagine there would be criminal charges that would take place before anyone ever really got into the impeachment discussion. Um, but I don't, I don't fully get that, but that's coming down the way. Uh, while we're speaking about Chris Millis, so this guy created a group called the North Carolina Conservatives PAC, and they uh, kind of went off the deep end a couple of days ago, where they sent out some tweets. One tweet says, hey, NC House Democrat Caucus, maybe it's time for a more butch leader than at Darren JNC. So that's Darren Jackson. Uh, clearly he's failed. Representative Pricey Harrison, perhaps. Hashtag NCGA. Now, if you're not familiar with the North Carolina House, Representative Pricey Harrison happens to be a lesbian, hence the outrage over the Bush reference. And of course, there are several Republicans who uh, saw that tweet and were disgusted by it. One of those is a uh, Republican staff attorney, Brent Woodcox, who works for the Senate. And Brent tweets them saying, quote, this is disgusting and doesn't represent any conservatism which, uh, with which I would align myself, hashtag NC poll. Uh, at which point the NC Conservatives PAC replies, oh, please, girl, uh, at Darren JNC sounds like a faggy version of Truman Capote. You know it's true. Get over yourself. Brent replied to them, another anonymous keyboard cowboy. You internet tough guys hiding behind your computer screens deep in your mom's basement bore me. Uh, to which the pack replied, apparently not, fat boy cuck. You should update that profile pic, something this century, hashtag NCGA, hashtag NC poll. Uh, then went on to say, so much fun, all y'all so triggered, keep it up, uh, time for bed, sad that at Brent Woodcox is a huge hashtag fat ass, apologetic cuck pussy, but what can you do, hashtag NCGA, hashtag NC poll. Now, the funny part about this is that uh, Logan Smith, who's another guy I follow on Twitter, he is at Logan James. Now, this guy's a liberal. I'll disclose that on the front end. Uh, but he happened to see these tweets and started doing some investigating, found out that Representative Millis was the guy who created all this and has been the spokesman for the PAC since it existed, uh, tweeted out to Representative Millis saying, hey, uh, are you still representing them? And then magically, the account got deleted, not shut down by Twitter, but actually deleted in its entirety. Um, and then in a news story to WRAL, Millis said both 
that it had been hacked, claiming that there was a former intern that somehow had access to the Twitter account, but also that he denied ever running the Twitter account. So how the hacked person had access to it and it magically got shut down right at the time Millis happened to see all of this, I, I don't know. Here's the thing about politicians. If you're going to do something stupid, like run a Twitter account, pretend that it's not you, do a better job at plausible deniability, all right? Being an asshole is bad enough, but being an incompetent asshole is even worse. So that is the week in North Carolina politics. Let's talk about some judicial decisions. The big news, of course, was at the Supreme Court, which allowed the president's Muslim ban to go into effect. Uh, with some pretty heavy revisions, the court's opinion said that if someone has a, quote, bona fide relationship with the country, that the ban could not apply to them, but that anyone who does not have that bona fide relationship banning them was fine because they don't have any ties to the country, so they don't have any constitutional or other rights that could theoretically be infringed. And, you know, this, the type of the opinion was a bit of a surprise, but the end result was not. So there's a, a Twitter thread that I'll link to you where I've actually had some discussions with other immigration attorneys, and pretty much all of us had agreed that the first version of the executive order was going to be unconstitutional because, among other things, it didn't include a carve-out for folks who have green cards, lawful permanent residents. But when the administration revised it to this second executive order, uh, there was a discussion where, even though it was still distasteful, still kind of against who we are as a country to single out certain faiths, um, it was probably going to be upheld as constitutional. Now, the Supreme Court has still not ruled on the merits. This only relates to the injunction that was in place that stopped the ban from taking effect while it's being litigated. That injunction has been lifted, and we'll see how the Supreme Court rules on the merits. But right now, it looks like that particular executive order will be upheld. Uh, another interesting case in terms of the media discussion, I don't know that it's going to be all that... Um, big a deal as far as the actual merits of the decision go, uh, is this case of Pavan v. Smith, which involved Alabama and their statutes governing whether or not same-sex couples could both be listed as parents on a birth certificate. Uh, at the time, the statute said that uh, mother has to be listed and then the mother's husband has to be listed. Of course, that creates an issue because same-sex marriage is now legal, so you're not going to have a husband necessarily. Uh, but the reason why the media picked up on it is that Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent where he was joined by Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. And the media has taken this to indicate that Gorsuch is rabidly anti-gay and this is proof um, and if you read it, it, it doesn't really seem that way um, because a lot of it's inside baseball as far as how the Supreme Court operates. Uh, in the Pavan v. Smith case, the court invalidated that Alabama statute, but they did so through what's called a summary reversal. So what that means is essentially it's a per curiam decision, so the justices aren't named, and there's no oral arguments. There's no detailed um, discussion of the case. It's just in its list of orders where they release it showing what cases are going to be coming up and who's allowed to do briefs and whatever else. Uh, the court just says, hey, this decision is reversed. So one of the opening lines to Justice Gorsuch's dissent is, quote, summary reversal is usually reserved for cases where the law is settled and stable, the facts are not in dispute, and the decision below is clearly an error. Respectfully, I don't believe this case meets that standard. And he goes on to talk about the merits a little bit, and the merits discussion is what's seized by folks as him being anti-LGBT, but if you take the position that summary reversal, where you don't even have oral arguments on a matter, where you're... Um, addressing something that was never raised in the notice of appeal or in the briefs, uh, when you, if you take the position that that's improper, then his dissent makes sense. Now, I don't know how he's going to turn out. He may very well turn out to be a complete enemy of the LGBT community. I just don't think this particular dissent does that. So that was a big uh, story in the media. Out of the Fifth Circuit, in the case of Brewer versus Hain and West, as well as Brooks versus Haynes. This is a consolidated case with two different defendants. Uh, basically, a quack helped put away a couple guys for murder that they didn't commit. And when they sued him, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, hey, guess what? This particular expert, even though he's a quack and used bad science to help convict you for a crime that you didn't commit, 
he's got immunity, you can't sue him. So that continues this judicially created doctrine of incentivizing bad conduct by government actors. It bothers the fuck out of me, but that's where we are. And that's never going to change until you create a, uh, a better class of politicians, get a better president willing to nominate better judges, or convince Congress critters to actually take action to rein in this whole doctrine of qualified immunity. But we'll link that decision in the show notes from the Fifth Circuit. Now, we do have a rare bright spot in the Seventh Circuit where there was a case involving Putnam County Sheriff's Deputy Terry Joe Smith. Uh, Smith had been charged with violating folks' civil rights uh, because there were two different cases where in one, a guy had been arrested, had been already handcuffed, was already compliant with another officer, when Smith just randomly punched him in the face, uh, quote, making a sound described as a tomato hitting a concrete wall. Uh, that sounds pretty grotesque. Uh, and then in a second issue, Smith had uh, dealt with a intoxicated domestic violence arrestee, walked him to the car, and then once he got to the squad car, just randomly decided to pick him up in the air, throw him face first on the ground, and then take his knee into the guy's back, uh, hitting him so hard that the defendant actually shit himself. And then was bragging, uh, Smith was bragging to his fellow officers that it wasn't the first time he'd made a uh, guy shit himself. So he was charged with violating these two individuals' civil rights. There was a jury trial. The jury actually convicted him because federal juries don't fuck around all that often. And as part of the sentencing guidelines, which y'all might remember if you missed our discussion on it, go back to the podcast episode where we talked about the Michael Slager plea. As part of the sentencing guidelines, Smith was supposed to get roughly 44 months, give or take. There was a sentencing range there. Uh, he did have a prior conviction for beating his wife. So again, this goes back to this whole issue that domestic violence is one of the greatest indicators of likelihood to reoffend, including among police. Um, but essentially, the guy was supposed to get a range between 33 to 41 months, and the judge uh, was deciding to be very sensitive to the police officer and only gave him 14 months instead. The government appealed that. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the sentence, sent it back down to the trial court for a resentencing, and the judge again gave a 14-month sentence, so the U.S. government appealed that again, and this time the Seventh Circuit has vacated it again and picked a new trial judge to handle the sentencing uh, by pointing out that the judge that did it the first time just kept giving this guy this dramatically below-guideline sentence for no discernible reason, didn't really explain in detail his basis for it. So that was a rare bright spot from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. We will see how the resentencing for Mr. Smith goes. Uh, while we're on the topic of police brutality, let's go through some of our criminal justice news because there's a lot of it this week. We'll start in the nation's capital where a, a bunch of folks staged what was called a die-in to protest the health care bill, which is currently on hold as Congress is on recess. And as part of that, the Capitol Hill police... Uh, decided that folks who were in wheelchairs didn't need to be in those wheelchairs anymore. So they started physically picking people up out of their wheelchairs and in at least one case just dropped a guy on the floor because they can. So let you know, if you ever want to go protest in D.C., probably not good for you to be disabled, paralyzed, or anything else. Uh, here in North Carolina, we'd mentioned in a prior podcast about one of the prosecutors just north of where I live had resigned because he had helped to uh, steal a bunch of money from the state by convincing another DA to hire his wife and then vice versa. Uh, they have now been indicted for misdemeanors, misdemeanor failure to discharge their duties of office. Uh, this, yeah, God, this is one of those things that really blows my mind because I really like the district attorney that helped prosecute this case. I've supported her for years back when she was a clerk of Superior Court down there, and I just can't for the life of me fathom why these guys are only being charged with misdemeanors and their wives aren't being charged at all when between the four of them, they helped defraud taxpayers out of a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, I got clients that steal, you know, $25 worth of stuff from Walmart and get charged with a felony, but you have elected officials engaging in public corruption to steal a lot of money, 
And the best we can do is a grand jury indictment for misdemeanor failure to discharge the duties of office. So my only hope is that aside from a conviction that the state bar will disbar these clowns and stop them from sullying the reputation of uh, my profession, but I won't hold my breath. Uh, Over in Union County, North Carolina, there's a comical story reported by WBTV where they've been trying to get public record text messages from the sheriff's department, the media has, uh, because the Union County Sheriff's Office took out a federal child abduction charge against a woman even after the district attorney declined to prosecute and the uh, subject matter experts at the UNC School of Government said that those types of charges were not warranted on these particular facts. Uh, The sheriff's office took out a magistrate's warrant to have her arrested anyway. So the media wanted records of how this all came about because this was very odd. And essentially, the uh, sheriff's office has kept changing their opinions or statements about why they can't produce this information. The first uh, reason they gave was that they had to rely on Verizon to keep text messages and that Verizon deleted them after five days. Well, that happens to violate state law because we have a records retention schedule for public records and you have to keep them even if the person you rely on for them doesn't do so. So when the media pointed that out, the story changed to, oh, we don't have any text messages that are responsive to your request without really explaining how they could have reviewed responsive text messages that they had previously said had been deleted. So the media kept at them, and then we had a third version of the story, which was, oh, we don't allow our deputies to use texts on the job, or we discourage our deputies from texting on the job. And then that got exposed as a lie because the media requested the exact same information from the district attorney's office, who not only was able to produce it, even though they used the same wireless provider, but also you see in those text messages that the DAs had received several texts from the deputies. Uh, So it was obvious that these folks were texting on the job. And then the attorney for the Union County Sheriff's Office essentially sent this email uh, saying, you know, I I just don't feel like giving this to you. Go fuck yourself. I'm retiring. Uh, His last line in the email says, I wish that I could wish you good luck, but that would not be true. My work here is done. Uh, So that is what's going on here in North Carolina. Down in Atlanta, new video has been released showing a black police officer punching the shit out of a guy who's already restrained. Um, Remember, rules of Fisk, rule number one, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are caught on video. So this went viral. Um, One of the uh, groups, Black Lives Matter of Greater Atlanta, posted on their Facebook page calling it Blue on Black Violence. Um... Down in Florida, as we keep trekking down the East Coast, uh, the police chief who helped engineer this police training demonstration that ended up with a woman being dead um, was found not guilty for negligence. So I don't know if y'all remember the story, but back in August of last year, there was a um, training exercise for police. And this one lady was a Citizens Academy. It was kind of like one of those role play things. You know, you keep having these people say, oh, if you think policing is so easy, you should go on a ride along or something like that. I've done that before. It's not terribly noteworthy. It doesn't change any of my criticisms. But they had this thing in Florida where they were doing this for folks. And this guy who put it together, the police chief, didn't go through the protocols. His name's Tom Lewis. Didn't go through the protocols to check to make sure that, you know, uh, firearms weren't actually loaded or anything else. And one particular police officer, as part of this exercise, shot uh, Mary Knowlton, who was 73 years old from Minnesota, had moved to Florida to retire, uh, shot her several times in the chest, and of course she died. So the police chief was put on trial. He was found not guilty. Uh, The officer is also on trial for manslaughter. His case is going to be coming up uh, either later this year or next year. So that was in Charlotte County, Florida. In Pinellas County, Florida, a sheriff's corporal was uh, being investigated for having an alleged extramarital affair with a co-worker. In the process, they uh, took his work phone and found that there was all sorts of racist, sexist, and other vulgar content on it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give you any of the details. Some of it's pretty salacious, but there will be a link in the show notes. Long story short, this guy resigned, but bear in mind he had been representing uh, people in law enforcement for some time. Uh, down in Jacksonville, Florida... There was cell phone video released 
of a young African-American man being stopped by a police officer. The officer ordered him to come to the patrol car. The guy's like, hey, what are you talking about? What did I do? The officer's like, oh, well, you crossed the street, you know, without waiting for the light. And then show me your ID. The guy's like, I don't have an ID. Officer says, oh, well, you know, you're going to go to jail. I'm going to ticket you for not having an ID, even though there is no law in Florida requiring a person to carry an ID with them. You have to have a driver's license if you're going to drive, but you don't have to have an ID when you're just walking around. So that was Duval County, Florida. And then in Seminole County, Florida, a black man was arrested and spent 90 days in jail for the heinous crime of possession of drywall. Carlos Cash had been pulled over. And the, uh, the officer who pulled him over claimed that he was driving without headlights, found white powder in the car. Cash said, hey, I do construction work. This is drywall. The officer didn't believe him, of course, ran a field drug test, which if any of you have cities using field drug tests, these things are notoriously unreliable. Don't listen to the hype. Don't listen to any of your politicians tell you they should not be used because they are not reliable at all. Anyhow, this particular field drug test uh, tested some drywall. It came back positive for cocaine. So, of course, Cash got arrested, taken to jail, and the guy was on probation. So the probation officer says, you don't get bond. You don't get to be released. So after this guy spent time in jail, finally the results came back that it was, in fact, drywall. But even then, after they got the results, he was actually kept in jail for another month because they didn't go through the process of getting the paperwork done for him to be released. So he spent two months in jail for a erroneous field drug test and then an extra month on top of that because of bureaucratic incompetence. So that is the criminal justice system in Florida. That place is a damn mess and frankly is a little uh, disturbing. Uh, over in Texas... This is not so much a police brutality case on its own as it is a judicial decision that sheds some light on a prior police brutality case that we've talked about. So y'all might remember Balch Springs, Texas, which is where 15-year-old Jordan Edwards was shot and killed by the officer, and then the police department essentially lied about what happened before correcting themselves. Uh, a judge has issued an opinion in a case involving a Michael Cunningham where Cunningham had gotten into an argument with someone else. So this other guy, uh, when I say got into, the other guy started it. Cunningham responded. The other guy gets a tire iron and threatens to beat Cunningham with it. Cunningham calls police. The police show up, and rather than arrest the guy threatening Cunningham, they arrest Cunningham for filing a false police report and put a bunch of stuff in their reports about what happened. Turns out that what actually happened was completely contradicted by video. And the judge goes in detail about how these police officers essentially lied. Now, who were the officers involved in this particular case? Well, one of them happens to be Jonathan Haber. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell to you, you've heard him before if you've been listening to us because he is now the police chief of Balch Springs, Texas. He is the clown who lied about the Jordan Edwards shooting, saying that the car was driving aggressively, and then it came out that that actually was not the case at all. So this particular police chief has a history of being a dishonest scumbag, and he continues to run the show in Balch Springs, Texas. Up in Seattle, in King County, police shot and killed 20-year-old Tommy Lee, who was armed with a pen. Uh, apparently, this is another one of those situations similar to Charlene Lyles, who was killed last week, where this guy, uh, hours before his graduation from high school, uh, had, there had been a police report where he was bothering people. Police arrived. Um, they thought he had a knife and supposedly was not responding to their commands because he was having some kind of mental health issue. And rather than find some way to take him down with non-lethal means until they can confirm whether or not he actually did have a knife, uh, they tried to tase him once. Supposedly that hit him and it wasn't responsive. We don't actually have any evidence that they tried to tase him. That's just the police story about it. Uh, but then they went ahead and shot him dead. 
told the media initially that he had a knife. That was their basis for it, which is why I'm a little bit skeptical about this whole taser narrative, uh, but then clarified later on that, in fact, it was only a pen. So they have killed this particular high school student hours before he was set to graduate. Uh, down in California, Oakland police are now being investigated because they have, quote, discovered, unquote, uh, a bunch of drugs inside a cabinet as they were cleaning the police department. So they don't know how the drugs got there or what they're for. You might recall that standard police procedure is to have evidence in an evidence locker, some kind of chain of custody so it can be introduced to trial. Uh, instead, at Oakland police, they just go ahead and put them in cabinets around the police department for future use by their officers. Um, over on the other side of the coast in New Jersey, those police we mentioned a few weeks back where they had pulled this innocent guy from a flaming car beat him, kicked him, dragged him into the street. Uh, those guys had been reinstated. They were only out of work for just a couple days. Uh, up in New York, the New York Police Department was conducting an internal trial. I don't want to use the word trial, but essentially an internal review of sorts of a police officer who was working undercover doing prostitution stings in Manhattan, uh, where it came out that he had actually been in the habit of beating the prostitutes that he was involved with. Uh, they were all illegal immigrants because human trafficking is a big problem. And uh, this guy is being investigated. The district attorney for New York refused to prosecute because apparently they don't prosecute violence when it's committed by police. Uh, NYPD has a long history of getting away with that. We'll see what the end result is, but my guess is this guy's going to stay on the force, keep earning taxpayer money, and keep beating more women. Over in Chicago, Illinois, three officers have been indicted for covering up the killing of Laquan McDonald. Uh, not sure if any of y'all remember that story, but that was back in 2014, I think. Um, essentially, a uh, Chicago police officer shot this teenager in the back 16 times. Uh, and then they all lied about it, tried to cover it up. Eventually, it got exposed when video of the incident got released. Uh, also in Chicago, a high-speed collision killed both an off-duty cop and another woman. Um, essentially, police tried to pull over a car, did not realize that particular car was being driven by an off-duty police officer. That officer fled. Police gave chase. Uh, we've talked before about the danger of these police chases and how they don't really care about collateral damage. Well, turns out that's what happened in this case. The, uh, the undercover officer's SUV uh, collided with a car, and the woman inside, a Chiquita Adams 27, uh, was killed. So that is happening over that way. Also in Chicago, let's uh, talk about some puppy side in Oak Forest, uh, which is one of the Chicago suburbs. A uh, deputy left his canine patrol dog in the patrol car where it promptly baked to death, was overheated because the officer was busy doing God knows what and just kind of left the dog there. Uh, doubt anything is going to happen as far as criminal charges go. If you happen to kill a canine, you get charged with murder. If a cop happens to kill a canine, it's just part of the uh, cost of doing business. So while we're on the topic of puppy side, up in Detroit, two Detroit residents have filed suit against the Detroit Police Department for killing their dogs as part of a marijuana raid. Um, Kenneth Savage and Ashley Franklin had a permit to grow marijuana for medicinal use. Uh, the police decided that they didn't like that. They were going to raid their home because the war on drugs is how a lot of these departments get their money. And rather than look at the permit that they were allowed to grow uh, marijuana or give them a chance to actually um, move the dogs away, uh, they decided to just go ahead and kill them anyway. They shot one of the dogs over the fence and then came in and blew away the other two. And that all happened... Uh, after this woman had said to them, hey, you're not allowed to come in without a warrant. And the officer said to her, quote, if you keep asking for a warrant, we're going to kill those dogs and call Child Protective Services to pick up your kid. And of course, that's exactly what they did. And one of the officers leading that particular charge uh, has already racked up 72 dead dogs on his watch, 72 career, career kills for just this particular officer. Uh, and he's not a beat cop. He's the guy that le leads the drug raids. So he's accustomed to blowing these dogs away. Uh, CJ 
Ciramella. I'm probably screwing up that guy's name, but he works for Reason Magazine. Uh, I'm going to link some of his investigative reporting on this issue because he's been covering it pretty thoroughly. But for contrast, so this particular guy has killed 72 dogs in his career. Uh, All of the L.A. Police Department shot eight last year. So a lot of puppy side going on in Detroit. Also in Detroit, we've got this crazy story uh, in, sorry, not Detroit, Inkster, Michigan, where a 22-year-old guy named James Saltmarshall had been arrested back in April for raping and then murdering his eight-month-old daughter. All right, heinous crime all over the news. Lots of uh, comments on social media, which you never want to read. I can only imagine what they said to him in jail. Well, fast forward to this weekend, uh, last Friday, and turns out the evidence against him was fabricated. Essentially, the medical examiner uh, claimed that the kid had um, trauma to the head and tearing to its rectum. Subsequent investigation found that none of that actually happened. There was no rape. There was no shaken baby syndrome. There was no fractured skull. Uh, there was nothing of any kind. So the charges against Mr. Salt Marshall were dismissed. He was released from prison. Uh, but I mean, Jesus Christ, this guy's life is is seriously going to be fucked up. So not only did the kid die, he didn't know the kid died until he got charged. He called nine one one because the kid was not breathing. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, learned that she was dead when he was charged with her murder, was not able to attend her funeral. Come to find out all of that was from fabricated evidence. So that is what's going on in Detroit. Uh, And that is all of those stories have just been from this past week. Uh, So that's where we are as a society with our criminal justice system. Good Lord. All right, let's go ahead and switch into our Law 140, where we're going to talk a little bit about scientific evidence. So going back to that Carlos Cash story out of Florida, the fact the guy did 90 days in jail because drywall tested positive for cocaine. One of the questions I got asked is how something like that can happen, how that type of evidence gets admitted. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the rules of evidence and the case law governing scientific evidence and how that type of stuff comes in. Now, this particular discussion is going to relate to trial because trial stuff is totally different then an uh, officer having probable cause to arrest you takes you to the magistrate. The magistrate's job is to look at your criminal history, the nature of your offense, whether or not you're a threat to the community and are likely to come to court, and determine whether or not you should get a bond to be released. In Cash's case, because he was on probation, the magistrate just said, no bond for you, that's it. Uh, We're not even going to talk about it. So these types of uh, rules of evidence don't apply really at that level. They only apply when we're talking about an official prosecution. But I figured me telling you, hey, there's not a whole lot you can do about the initial arrest and detention was not going to make for a terribly interesting Law 140 segment. So we're going to talk about the trial rules instead. And to do that, you have to go back to, again, we talked about these rules of FISC. Second rule of FISC, start at the source. So believe it or not, a lot of the statutes that govern how the trials operate uh, weren't always around forever. You know, it's something that they are a fairly recent innovation. And prior to these rules being adopted, you had to rely on how judges had issued their decisions. The whole nature of common law was that it was judge-made law. Their decisions fashioned how things operated. And back in 1923 out of the circuit court for the District of Columbia, you had the case of Fry versus United States. And the issue on appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was whether or not a polygraph test should be admissible. As part of that decision, the court ruled, quote, just when a scientific principle or discovery crosses the line between the experimental and demonstrable stages is difficult to define. 
Somewhere in this twilight zone, the evidential force of the principle must be recognized, and while the courts will go a long way in admitting experimental testimony deduced from a well-recognized scientific principle or discovery, the thing from which the deduction is made must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. So this became known as what's called the Fry General Acceptance Test. And a lot of your states uh, all adopted the Fry standard. So even today, even though the standard is different, you still have a lot of states that are on the Fry standard, including a lot of the biggest ones like California, Illinois, and New York. But we'll get to all that in a minute. So you then had back just before uh, World War II, you had this legislation passed by Congress called the Rules Enabling Act. And the purpose of that legislation was to allow the courts to set out the rules of civil procedure because Congress decided that it was too much work for them to do it when they're not involved in kind of the daily ins and outs of the court. So as part of the Rules Enabling Act, what they did is the Supreme Court can appoint whoever to draft the rules. The Supreme Court can review it. And then it's up to Congress to go ahead and decide whether or not that's going to be allowed to take effect. So this is how you've gotten our rules of civil procedure, our rules of criminal procedure, and our rules of evidence. The federal rules of evidence to, um, took effect in 1973. So that's how, that's how new they are. They were only passed a few years before I was born. Um, so you have a lot of older lawyers that were around back before the rules of evidence ever existed. So as part of the rules of evidence... You now have this codification of a whole bunch of stuff. You know, what is relevant evidence, what's admissible, what's not, what witnesses can testify, who can't, uh, whether or not hearsay can come in. I've talked before about all of the different exceptions to the hearsay rule. So all of this became part of federal law, and the question was considered by the Supreme Court in the case of Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals Incorporated whether the scientific standard that had been articulated in Fry, this Fry general acceptance test, whether that was still valid in light of the fact that Congress had enacted these rules of evidence. And the Supreme Court essentially said no, that Fry was no longer valid law because by adopting the rules of evidence, Congress intended for the rules of evidence to be the applicable standard. And part of Rule 702 uh, governed expert testimony and scientific evidence and how this all played out. So you have these three cases. They're called the Daubert Trilogy. So Daubert happened in 1993, and that was essentially a case where it was a 7-2 decision, uh, kind of 9-0, depending on how you look at it. Um, essentially, you had seven justices in the majority, and then Rehnquist and Stevens concurred in the result but had a dissent for the reasoning. Uh, but essentially, that stipulated as part of Daubert that the Fry standard was not what you had to use. You had to use the statutory text from Rule 702, and the court opined at length about what all that would entail. The next case in the Daubert trilogy was General Electric versus Joyner, where the court said that when you're appealing a ruling based on a Daubert uh, exclusion, if you will, a judge deciding they're not going to admit evidence. Uh, the appeal to that use was called the abuse of discretion standard, which we've talked a little bit about before. And then the third case in the Daubert trilogy is Kumo Tyre versus Carmichael, where the Supreme Court said in 1999 that the Daubert standard applied to uh, expert testimony from non-scientists. So you don't have to be a scientist to be an expert. All you have to do is have specialized training, knowledge, or skills that helps the fact finder, the jury, understand a particular issue. So if any of you have seen the movie My Cousin Vinny, it's actually a very accurate movie as far as the law goes where uh, Vinny goes about uh, tendering his girlfriend as an expert in uh, cars, essentially to figure out that the defendants had not committed this particular crime because of the nature of the vehicle they were driving. So go watch that movie. It's one of the most legally accurate movies as far as that particular piece of tendering an expert goes. So in response to the Dahlberg decision and the Dahlberg trilogy, 
uh, Congress actually revised Rule 702 back in 2000 to kind of encapsulate some of what those uh, rulings had in them. So now you have what's called the Daubert Standard, which essentially does a couple things. One, it's the role of the judge to exercise a gatekeeping function to decide whether or not any given expert testimony should go to the jury. So you'll have the judge consider it first before you decide whether or not the jury can hear it at all. And then it's up to the judge to decide as well whether or not the evidence that's being offered is relevant to the issues being considered in the litigation and that it's reliable, that the methods that were used to reach that conclusion are based on scientifically reliable means. Um, and then as part of determining all of that stuff, the court has listed out several factors uh, to consider as to whether or not something is reliable. Now, the first factor is the Fry test, whether or not the theory or the technique used by the expert is generally accepted in the scientific community. If it is, there's kind of a heavy presumption that it's going to be reliable. But even if it's something that's not generally accepted, the court looks, for example, as to whether or not the particular theory or technique uh, has been subjected to peer review, publication in journals, uh, whether it can be or has been tested, what the potential uh, error rate is or the known error rate, whether or not that's acceptable or not, and whether the research was conducted separately from the litigation or if it was done uh, to be dependent on this particular witness's testimony. So this is a non-exhaustive list of factors, but kind of spells out what a judge is supposed to be looking for when they're weighing scientific evidence. And then as part of that, in 2011, Congress revised Rule 702 a bit more uh, to try and make this even more clear. So now the rule itself reads, uh, Rule 702, Testimony by Expert Witnesses, a witness who is qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education may testify in the form of an opinion or otherwise if A, the expert's scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact in issue, B, the testimony is based on sufficient facts or data, C, the testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods, and D, the expert has reliably applied the principles and methods to the facts of the case. So that is the nature of federal evidence at this point. The federal courts use the Daubert standard. In response to that, several state courts have either adopted Daubert specifically or created their own statutes that are very Daubert-like, incorporating those same types of factors that we talked about. Uh, in North Carolina, actually, we just became a Daubert jurisdiction fairly recently. Uh, but you do still have several states, like I mentioned, including the big ones like California and New York, that still operate off of that Fry general acceptance standard. So that's a quick splash into the nature of scientific evidence. We're going to wrap it up here. I want to wish all of you a happy 4th of July as we celebrate the birthday of the United States. Uh, quick aside, so I am licensed to practice in the 4th Circuit Court of Appeals, and one of the coolest things I liked about my little certificate allowing me to practice is that it includes the year, of course, and it's the typical formulation in the year of our Lord 2015 is what mine says. But then it goes on, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 239th. So we're now the 241st year of independence of the United States. But I think that's really cool that that was part of my documents from the federal courts. So I hope all of you have a fantastic week, but particularly enjoy Independence Day. It is my favorite holiday of the year. Thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of myself and Samson, who is still knocked out, have a great week.